Hello and welcome to The Film File, episode 81 of the film show for film geeks by Film Geeks. Hello and welcome, as ever, I'm Lee Ford. And I'm still Andy Meakin. Which is a good thing, because that would be a very strange time paradoxy <laughs> kind of show already. And we've had a time paradox already because we started recording this um, a little bit earlier than what we normally do. And we were suddenly hit by strange delays. Um, Andy was uh, uh, not quite hearing me on time. In fact, he was hearing me from back in 1987. It, it, it was a weird kind of like Doctor Who kind of time distortion effect. And uh, it kind of freaked me out. <laughs> what was that movie? Uh, Frequency, the one with Dennis Quaid. And remember that? It was a bit like that for a minute. Oh, yeah. We're, we're sending messages through the ether uh, yes. to the past and speaking. Yeah. There was a TV series that was made that adapted it for different formats, which was okay. I don't remember the TV series, remember the movie. And anyway, our recording started off a bit like that. Anyway, Andy, I know I've got you up bright and early. Uh, and this is not your best time of day because beware, sunlight, for instance. And uh, and secondly, I know you've probably done some late shifts. But how are you generally, other than getting up ridiculously early to do the pod? I'm generally good. Um, it's been a busy weekend at work. The rain brought a lot of people into the building. And with the double whammy of Jungle Cruise and Suicide Squad, which we will talk about later coming out it meant that we, we were busy through the day and in the evenings it's been great it's been a really good vibe and whilst i'm tired and i am exhausted and i made this mistake last week i sent you the message <laughs> saying what time should we record and you instantly go like how does early sound and me not thinking goes yeah that'll be fine and then do i sleep no i don't sleep so i sit up all night researching um so i am tired but this is me. I, I get by on tired. I'll, I'll crash in about three weeks' time and then just stay asleep for three days. Um, but, <laughs> I wish I could do that. But most of my past week, aside from working, has been ranting at people. And it's not like me to have a rant, is it? <laughs> um, when you say ranting at people, is are there any specific people that you have been ranting at? It's the proliferation of the term woke as an insult, which has started to really, really bug me. Now, Interestingly enough, Andy, I'm just going to interject there, but I have had um, a similar kind of little clash based on exactly that. How coincidental. It's 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 all over the Internet and you see it all the time. Like people was like, Star Trek is too woke these days. Oh, this is too woke. And you've been getting it over the past week from Masters of the Universe is rubbish because it's all woke. What are they? What do they, you ask them what they mean by woke? And they just say it's pushing an agenda. You ask what agenda? And they can't be specific because they realise that in order to be specific, they have to say that they're sexist and racist. Because woke, dictionary definition, basically sums up to you are aware of injustices in society and inequalities and think that things need to be equaled. So when you insult someone calling them woke, you are basically saying, I'm a right-winged Nazi. Um, <laughs> you know, I never thought I, of that. That would a great retort for when I have <laughs> a, similar kind of, uh, a similar kind of argument. But um, I... I there was like at work this week, there was one guy who started like saying like, cause it was, I overheard a chat between two team members about the new masters of the universe. And one of them started going on a rant about like wokeism infiltrating everything. And I just went, let him finish his rant. And then just took him to one side. Just went, can I just ask you to not use the term woke in such a context? And I was like, why, why? It's like, do you want me to tell you what woke means? And so I told him the dictionary definition and he looked at me like all perplexed. And went, oh, I didn't realise that what what it, that's what it meant. It's like, well, you're using the term without knowing what it means. Which is even worse in my book. 
yeah, when you use it in such a way, you are basically bought into this um, right-wing propaganda machine that is telling you that everyone's out to get your job and women should be lesser people, et cetera, et cetera. So you are making out that you are right-wing. And he's like, oh, no, now that I know that, I'm not going to use it again. I'm going to be very careful. It's like, happy to educate. And I'm glad that he took it on board in such an educational way. He didn't take it as me having a go at him. He took it as like me going, look, mate, you really need to consider what you're saying. Um, at the same time, one other team member started like going on about like, well, you know, they are pushing the agenda in things a bit too much these days. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, well, Star Trek is like, Star Trek's always pushed an agenda. It had the first interracial kiss way back in the 60s. Uh, uh, um, it also had an actual episode with a race of people who one half of the, the skin was black, one half was white, and they were at a war against people with the reverse way round because they look different. It's always pushed an agenda. Oh, Star Trek. You see, that's what disappoints me with when people bring up Star Trek as mm. as a kind of a lifelong, I wouldn't say Trekkie because I'm not that invested. I, um, you know, you grew up with something like Star Trek and Star Trek was always about, even though it was a 60s-based show and, uh, and reflected a, a 60s era, but it was also reflected sort of the growth in, in, in gender equalities, uh, yep. racial equalities, even though it was it was baby steps. And, and and I remember talking to Star Trek fans uh, at the time, and I was only a kid uh, during sort of the seventies, and I went to sort of my first couple of Star Trek conventions. I'm I'm not that geeky, but I have been. You know, people kind of embrace this idea that you know uh, a positivity yeah. of you know Star Trek was always a, about being your best self and being the best world that you could possibly live in. Where um, and Gene Roddenberry's vision was always about. You know, we we leave behind the petty squabbles of the 20th century and 21st century to to look forward to where people could be gay or could be black or could be white or could be middle aged or could be young, uh, and everything was seen through this this prism of 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 a much more positive society, and that was the underlying belief of what Star Trek was about that we we got through all the crap that we we've going through in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and, and even today yeah. to to have this better understanding of the world so we could reach out and 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 work with other civilizations and not have agendas other than you know moving forward and discovery so it always it's always surprised me when when Star Trek in particular gets mentioned as being yeah uh, being labeled uh, because it always has had that philosophy behind it, and if I was a a, a a black kid and didn't feel represented on TV shows and uh, and movies, or, or uh, as a woman, knowing that I, if I could move forward and, and again be represented, I'd be annoyed. I'd be angry because I'm I'm a white privileged middle class guy. I see lots of me on yeah. on TV. So aren't we just saying that everyone should have that 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 just that agenda where we move forward rather than it has to be you're pushing an agenda yeah, yeah. i know i'm talking to the converted and i'm sure you dear listeners are uh a part of uh, of a, a much more thoughtful agenda as well and that's all it is it's been about being thoughtful that's it i mean yeah if any of the listeners out there do use the term woke but didn't really realize what it meant I hope that you've learned something and that you'll you'll try not to use it. We're fine with you not liking something for your own personal reasons. We're fine with you finding something a bit too tired and formulaic. But stop trying to use what is a what is a positive expression in a negative way because you are just showing yourself up as being the bad guy. 
And that's what it's all about. We don't want people to come across as being ignorant, bad, pe- bad people because they've been bought into this, this hysteria. Oh, no, they're making a black Superman. How woke. It's been a black Superman in the comics previously, so it's nothing new. Stop getting excited about it. Doctor Who is too woke these days. Have you never watched Tom Baker era? There was literally episodes which would spend five minutes on a podium, like ranting about equality <laughs> and like it, like sexism and intolerance. It's always been like that. Sci-fi has always pushed agendas. It's what sci-fi was basically created for, to tell futuristic or otherworldly tales, to tell a social message and a commentary about society at the time. Wokeism is a good thing. Wokeism is not bad. And then, you know, if we we want to just carry on this thread, in fact, let's not. Let's not. (laughs) (laughs) We can go down this thread forever. Soapbox moment over. (laughs) Soapbox moment over. And moving swiftly on. On today's show, we're going to be reviewing James Gunn's new The Suicide Squad. And remember, it's The Suicide Squad, just not Suicide Squad. We'll be talking about Jungle Cruise. And Andy will be reviewing the latest movie to land on Amazon Prime. That is Shadow in the Cloud. And our deep dive this week is into the Steven Spielberg classic, the film that made his career. We're talking about Jaws. But before any of that, of course, no show would be complete without the news. So how are we looking news-wise this week, Andy? We had a, to say last week, we didn't have much in the way of news. We still managed to we still managed a good, to get, a yeah, good, good 40 minutes hour. worth. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, there's quite a good bit of news, although a lot of it is small little bites of casting news this week. But let's start off as normal with um, our regular look at how the box office has been doing, particularly in the US, because that's the big market. Uh, so Jungle Cruise has had a very strong opening in the US. It was predicted to finish around 25 to 30 million, but it actually finished the weekend on 34 million. It scraped in an additional 27.6 million internationally, which was kind of disappointing, but a lot of territories are entering back into shutdown situations again. So it's probably the best that it's going to manage to do. On Disney Plus, uh, they revealed such as same as they did with Black Widow that Jungle Cruise took 30 million worldwide, which is significantly less on the premium streaming than what Black Widow did. But it makes the whole taking so far $91 million after the first weekend. Now, that sounds good until you factor in it's a 200 million budget. And if the film sees the 60 to 70% drop off that other titles have seen week on week, it will struggle to turn a profit. I think this is going to be, and we've talked about this previously, an ongoing situation because we're getting reasonably good openings with bigger drop-offs that we've than we've had before. And that's not down to the quality of the movies. I think it's still audiences finding their feet. And with a brand new release, or in this case, two brand new releases, hitting the screens, we are spoiled for choice. Yeah. And there's a lot of content and maybe not enough time to see it. And still that underlying theme of, are we all feeling ready to get back into the cinemas? And with those kind of figures and those kinds of drop-offs, I'm clearly suggesting no. Well, the Delta variant is causing some concerns, particularly in America where it's going rampant. And there are talks that New York and LA may shut down again, which will close the biggest markets for cinemas. Uh, Suicide Squad opened in five territories this weekend. It's not opened in the US until this coming weekend. And the James Gunn film brought in seven million dollars in its five territories. In the UK, it actually outperformed Jungle Cruise 
um, the equivalent of $4.7 million, which is about $3 million, to $3.2 million for Jungle Cruise, which is about $2.1 million. However, spinning off from all this news of how things are performed, and particularly the drop-offs week on week that have been quite significant, there's a lot of anger getting thrown around in Hollywood at this point in time. Scarlett Johansson has started the ball rolling with a lawsuit being filed against Disney claiming breach of contract over the split streaming and cinema release of Black Widow, citing that as her pay relies on box office back-end deals, the streaming option has cut an element of her pay. In the words of the lawsuit, Disney intentionally induced Marvel's breach of the agreement without justification in order to prevent Miss Johansson from realising the full benefit of her bargain with Marvel. Now, you could argue as many have, and indeed Disney have tried to retort with, that she got paid a 20 million flat rate before she gets any of the box office back-end deals. There's a pandemic, so clearly she's just been a rich, selfish person. But that's going to be missing the point entirely. This is a big-name star using her iconic presence, even though she particularly probably doesn't need all that money. She has people who work for her, who she needs to pay. And there's other people who are affected by this who aren't as high-profile. And someone needs to set the legal precedent. And that's what this lawsuit's all about. It's setting that legal precedent that if they're going to do this split streaming option, they need to renegotiate everyone's contract. When Warners did their HBO Max thing last year and said this is going to happen, there was kickback from them at the time. There was kickback saying, oh, this is disgraceful. People are going to lose out. So they renegotiated everyone's contracts to make it fair. Disney didn't do that. And that's the key thing. According to representatives for Johansson, they did approach Disney when they finally said it was going to go to split streaming, but Disney just shunned them away and didn't want to know. They tried to renegotiate the contract to make it fair. Disney pushed it away. That's why this is all kicked off. And we talked about this when Wonder Woman came out because Gal Gadot was in a similar sort of position. And it's not just Scarlett Johansson. Emma Stone, as well, is in the same situation for Cruella. Yeah. You've also got to remember that Scarlett Johansson is a producer as well on Black Widow. So those fees go to her producing fees, not just her star fees. And and from what we're hearing, Kevin Feige is not happy with the way that that Disney have have handled this to one of his his major players. uh, And and he's disappointed in that. He's quite embarrassed, I believe his term was. Embarrassed and ashamed at the way that they responded, which... If they upset Feige, the last thing that Disney are going to want to do at this point in time is risk Feige jumping ship. Yeah. The guy's masterminded all of the Marvel projects and he's got a clear path as where to go. If they make him feel that he doesn't want to work for that company anymore, I'm telling you, Warner Brothers will be sat on the sidelines going, come over here. Yeah. Come on, boy. Come on, boy. He will get snapped up. So that I think him weighing in with his opinion on it will have considerable impact. Rock the Dwayne Johnson has said that he's not going to take legal action himself if um, there's a loss on the back end with Jungle Cruise, which is having a similar split streaming and cinema release. However, um, some information which hasn't been completely verified at this point in time, so I'll just say that this is speculation, says that his contract was renegotiated a couple of months ago. So he's probably already tackled that aspect because his legal team were managed to get to talk to Disney. I wonder why someone like Dwayne Johnson managed to get a legal team to talk to Disney and not Emma Stone and Scarlett Johansson. There's something that stands out about him. I don't him know. That I can't I quite don't know. Gender comes, comes to mind. I don't, I don't know. Allegedly. Let's allegedly. just say allegedly. 
because, like I say, this is speculation at the moment. There's nothing confirmed. But he said that he won't be taking legal action. On the subject of legal action against um, companies that have ripped you off, Gerard Butler is getting in on the action. However, it's for the 2013 film, Olympus Has Fallen. Oh, right. No, there's nothing like um, <laughs> like holding off on a, a on a legal action until, ooh, somewhat eight years, nine years later. I mean, he, he's on a roll as well of getting a good run of films as well. So it's not like he particularly needs the money. But this is, um, he's filing a lawsuit against New Image and Millennium for allegedly 10 million that he's owed from back-end compensation. In this case, the lawsuit is claiming that the production company understated the international sales and failed to report on an 8 million bonus that went to the studio execs at the same time. So this is more a case of accounts, books, balancing, fiddling that he believes has gone on that has left him run short. The reason why it's taken so long to come to light, if you've ever tried looking at accounts books and trying to work out where the fiddling is going on, <laughs> this has probably been in the back burner for years as people have been trying to dig through them. So he's just basically wanting to get something that he's owed from way back in the past, which fair dues. But this, if this is the case that this is happening so much, this shows how corrupt some of the industry is when it comes to the reporting on figures and in you know using their stars to sell something but they're not rewarding them what they promised. And hopefully this is going to help bring an end to that kind of corruption. This has gone on for years, though, Andy. There have been many, many variations on this same story of stars. Uh, I remember it with Eddie Murphy going back over mm. one of his films and realising it had made more money. I think you get a little bit jaded when you are in our side of the entertainment field, where you look at uh, big stars, arguing over who gets $10 million when, you know, $10 million would set us up for life. But that's why they get paid the big books. They yeah. get paid the big books to launch big films, uh, to, to guarantee an audience. It's it's the same with football. It's the same uh, across any of the entertainment division. These people get paid a, an astronomical amount of money. But there is a reason for that because it's a massive, massive industry. It doesn't work on two and six. It doesn't work on pennies. It works in the in the, the billions and gazillions a lot of the time. So while we might feel a, a bit jaded that big stars are chasing ten million dollars, where we will never see ten million dollars, it, it's part of the it's part of an industry. You've got to look at it in in those options rather than go, oh, they're just being greedy. No, it's your, it's your lifeblood. It's your lifeline. It's what you get paid to do. I've done jobs on much much cheaper where I've not got paid. Yeah. Or I've not got paid and I've had to had to chase it. And I've, I've, uh, I've gone down the legal avenue and sometimes that's the only way that works. But it happens across all aspects of the industry. And trust me, when you get paid to do the bigger jobs, you get paid very, very well. And I have thankfully done some of the bigger jobs and got paid very, very well for it. But if you don't get paid again for another two years because you can't find another job or the, the phone doesn't ring or there's a pandemic, then you have to rely on being paid very, very well for that for that one job. My yeah. Netflix job, for instance, I've lived off that for two years, but part of that was because I had to for a pandemic. The, the important thing to realise is that each of these stars who gets paid the money has to pay people who work for them out That's of right. their money that they get. So you don't think of Scarlett Johansson just as a person. She is a business and she has employees that she has to pay from her earnings as a business. The same way that my cinema may be part of a chain, but we don't get all the profits of the chain. We just have the profits for our cinema that we have to pay our employees out of. That's how you have to look at these big Hollywood stars. Scarlett Johansson has 
trainers, assistants, assistants to assistants. She has agents, everyone Manages to pay for her. the works, you know, an, an organisation, an industry behind the person. When she's not paid correctly for something that she's done, she has to pay all her workers out of her own pocket. And sometimes that can take them into a loss. That's why they have to fight. Because the bigger a star they become, the more people they need to support their position within the industry. Well said. And so the bigger their, their business is. Moving on. Leaving it there. Let's move on. So, again, with the anger being thrown about, David Ayer, the director behind 2016 Suicide Squad, has fired back at the film that his name was tagged to, but which was very different from the film he wanted to bring to the world. The film was notoriously edited out of his hands by a panicking studio, and Ayer has posted on social media frequently of how the film differs from his edit, which is complete, according to him. His version has been completely edited together, because his version and the one done by the trailer company were both used for test screenings, and then a mashup of the two was put together for what the release was. He says there's no expensive reshoots and effects work to be done, but the studio simply don't want to release it. Now, this week, he posted a lengthy response on the subject, stating that he's no longer going to speak out on the matter after the statement, and he used it as his final discussion on the whole thing. Leaving it all, the ball is now in the court of Warner Brothers as to whether or not it will see the light of day. As he said... I've never told my side of the story and never will. I'm old school like that. So I kept my mouth shut and I took the tsunami of sometimes shocking personal criticism because he did. He got he got attacked for how bad that film was, even though he didn't really do it. But he, he never said, this isn't my film, get lost. I put my life into Suicide Squad. I made something amazing. My cut is intricate and an emotional journey with some bad people who are crapped on and discarded, a theme that resonates in my soul. The studio cut is not my movie. Read that again. And my cut is not the 10-week director's cut. It's a fully mature edit by Lee Smith standing on the incredible work by John Gilroy. Now, for all those who have responded to this thinking the timing is an attack on James Gunn releasing his Suicide Squad film this week, it is worth noting that Ayer has been very supportive of Gunn from day one and he's more than happy with the film that James Gunn has made. And so there's no battle lines being drawn between the two directors here. This is purely him saying, I made a version of the film that it will cost you nothing to just release as an extra or put it on HBO Max, but you're refusing to do it for some bizarre reason. That's interesting. See, I I misread that. I'll be honest. I was one of the people who went, are, are you jumping on James Gunn and trying to steal his thunder? Or, and now I'm reassessing it, a perfect window to, to finally speak out and then late to rest. And then as he says, he's not doing a Snyder and... and constantly constantly going going on about it he said i will put it to rest at this stage um the truth is out there from his own belief i dislike suicide squad but i didn't hate it um i had a lot more fun with suicide squad than i did with justice league for instance yeah and uh, i would be seminally interested in seeing it i wouldn't be overly interested in if, if it came out and i didn't have to pay to see it you know it, it turned up on a streaming service i'd probably watch it but I'm I'm not enamoured enough to to go back and and review it, and maybe that's the issue. I know I do that. I'm on the fence about lots of things, <laughs> but I try to offer both sides. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe because it hasn't got people screaming to see it, only the director by the sounds of things, uh, and we have moved on satisfactorily in a way that has given another director much more control over it. Maybe there's been um, that that significant enough of a change within uh, whoever's running the sort of DC side now to say we do have a bit more faith in our directors. 
I'm a, I'm a fan of Ayer's work. I, li- I like pretty much all of his films. I'd be interested to see his cut of the film because what was delivered did not feel like one of his films. No. And that that disappointed me because I was excited for the film because of his name being attached and it clearly wasn't his film. So I think that if it's there, if it's if the cut's there, throw it on a DVD release, throw it as an extra or throw it onto HBO Max so it'll get out on the streaming. I think there'll be enough of a market to make it worthwhile. I think there is a, enough interest online, particularly on Twitter. There is a hashtag, as you can expect, release the Aya cut. I, I think there's enough interest to see what he would have delivered. Let's move on. Let's stop let's talking on. about people being angry in Hollywood and let's talk about the positives that are coming out. What are the positives that are coming out, Andy? Filming has begun on Neil Marshall's return to horror, named The Lair. The story, which will focus on RAF pilot Lieutenant Kate Sinclair on her final flight mission when her plane is shot down over a rebel stronghold in Afghanistan. She finds refuge in an underground bunker and finds deadly man-made creatures hungry for human flesh. Barely escaping, she unfortunately leads the creatures back to the US Army base she escapes to. And hopefully, I am hopeful that this is a return to form for Marshall, who in recent years has struggled with films such as The Reckoning and that awful Hellboy reboot. We talked we talked about the Hellboy reboot before. We've talked about why it went astray. And uh, again, he's one of those directors who didn't have full control over the edit. And if you if you go back and you watch the film, you don't have to. Trust me, you don't have to. It, it feels <laughs> like an incomplete film when you watch it. Yeah. Uh, even to the to the fact when you think you should be cutting to a close up now because that's what you should be doing, and you think I bet they never got round to shooting it. There's so many long shots in that film and so little in the way of of close ups that it starts to feel as though you're watching an incomplete film. Anyway. We, we're not going to be negative. We're going to be positive. We're going to be very positive. Uh, Netflix have Nolan in their sights and are hoping to secure a deal with him for his next film. And again, this leads back to your Johansson story because he was one of the f- first people who kicked off about uh, the joint releases. Yeah. Nolan has always been very pro-cinema and he he's worked with Warners for two decades now exclusively. And now... He's he's shipping himself around because he's disappointed with how they're they're aiming going forwards. Netflix chief Scott Stuber revealed that he has been speaking with Nolan recently. If and when Christopher Nolan comes up with his new movie, it's it's about can we be a home for it and what we would need to do to make that happen. He's an incredible filmmaker. I'm going to do everything I can in this business. I've learned you have zero ego. I get punched and knocked down and get back up. Now, this will be an interesting catch if Netflix managed to get Nolan on board, because with him being so pro-cinema and Netflix being a streaming service, does this mean that Netflix are seriously considering doing long theatrical runs of their things rather than their usual approach, which is if it gets a cinema release, it's a limited two-week release before it comes onto streaming? Interesting times. Well, that's the way that we've speculated that Netflix will go, especially if they do get into the owning of a chain, for instance, which is still being rumoured for yeah. both Amazon and Netflix that they, they'll have their own cinema chain at some point. So um, if you're going to get Christopher Nolan, you've got to play by Christopher Nolan's rules. And and clearly Warners have seen that and have seen the consequences of not playing by his, uh, by his yeah. game plan. So, yeah, interesting times. I'm going to make you happy now, Andy. Yay. Because I'm going to give you some positivity because I know you want some. Tom Hanks is to join Wes Anderson on his next film. And we talked about Wes Anderson's next film being set in Spain. Well, it looks like Tom Hanks is joining the Anderson party. I mean, yeah, I mean, when I read this, I instantly thought, how can you make a Wes Anderson film even more perfect? 
And then, well, of course, you add Tom Hanks to it. And, oh, my, does that sound like a perfect fit for a Wes Anderson? I mean, to be honest with you, every time that people say, which actor would you like to work with Wes Anderson? My instant response is like, anyone, really, because he gets the best out of everyone. But let's be honest, Tom Hanks is just perfect. The perfect fit. Apparently, it's only going to be a small cameo. Um, but I'm happy with that, and I would love if it's the start of a regular Hanks and Anderson affair. The same as like how you know Bill Murray has become a staple of his films. Tilda Swinton is now a staple of his films. Adrian Brody pops up all the time. He's got his Jeff people Goldblum. who will always turn up. I would love for Tom Hanks to just be popping up for small little roles in every film from Wes Anderson going forwards. See, I've made you happy now. Oh, I'm, I'm so happy I'm going to explode. I am, I'm currently on a, a stint of um, re-watching Wes Anderson films, and I've even tracked down all of his shorts and all his adverts and spent a whole night watching them. I love the guy. Uh, nothing makes me happier than a Wes Anderson. Um, on other casting news, uh, Sebastian Stan has been cast in the A24 and Apple feature thriller, Sharper. Benjamin Caron is directing this story, which follows a con artist, played by Julianne Moore, in the world of Manhattan's billionaires. Stan is Max, a low-key scammer who's... But, who's known for complex plans that deliver huge sums of money and the pair inevitably team up. Sounds like it could be a, a, the basis of a cracking heist movie. And we've said before, A24 delivers some quality and Apple are delivering quality after quality. So those two names pairing together on this has made me instantly excited for this one. Excellent. I've got a bit of news. Uh, this again will make, well, make me happy, if not, not you, Andy, because you know I'm a big fan of J.K. Simmons. Now, it seems that J.K. Simmons is in talks, and he's only in talks at this stage, so it might be pure speculation, to return as Commissioner Gordon in the upcoming Batgirl film, which ties in, I guess, the DCU to Justice League. I thought, what a waste of an amazing talent uh, of J.K. Yeah. Simmons in for, le- well, shall we say, less than 10 minutes screen time, if that, to turn up as, as Commissioner Gordon... I know he get a slightly extended scene in the uh, in, in the Snyder Cut, but what a waste of J.K. Simmons. So if he is to return back to the DCU as Commissioner Gordon, then I am applauding it already because I'm a huge fan. Put J.K. Simmons in a film and, and it instantly improves. Goes up a star for me. It, it was probably one of the only decent things in the Zack Snyder's Justice League, to be honest with you. But let's move away from the negativity. Sticking with DC, uh, the Blue Beetle has been cast. Its lead actor is Cobra Kai breakout star Zolo Mariduena, and he's very close to signing on for the role of Jamie Ray's. The story for the Blue Beetle is focusing on the 2006 version of the character, a Mexican-American teen who discovers the Blue Beetle scarab in a half-buried, disused lot. Overnight, the beetle grafts itself onto his spine and grants him the ability to summon a powerful suit of armour that boosts his strength and speed and also gives him the ability to morph weapons, wings and a shield. Charm City Kings director Angel Manuel Soto is directing and it's going to be for HBO Max. It's a shame that this is not going to be a big screen outing because I'd love to see these these B-list and C-list DC characters get the big screen outings a bit more. But at least it's getting a film done for it. HBO Max will give it some ground and maybe we'll get to see these come onto the big screen later down the line. While we're still in the comic verse uh, part of our news, there is a rumour going around today that the Black Panther sequel, uh, known as Wakanda Forever, has not only cast, and we mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I just want to point out, it has not become an official piece of news that 
uh, Namor the Submariner had been cast. Now, Namor's cousin, Namorita, yes, it is such a thing, has also been cast as well. And we've heard that Mabel Kadena is amongst those being eyed for the role. But as we said so far, it is purely, purely speculative. As I say, we've heard nothing from Disney, nothing from Marvel. But for those who are interested, you want to check them out on IMDb. Tenok Huetra has uh, been, apparently been cast as the Submariner, but time will tell. Uh, Nicholas Holt is lined up to star alongside Anya Taylor-Joy, Ray Fiennes and Hong Chow. Oh, good cast. It, it's a cracking cast. In dark comedy thriller The Menu, which sees a couple travel to a remote island and eat at an exclusive restaurant with lavish exotic menus and some shocking surprises. I get the feeling that um, there's going to be some Soylent Green getting served at the menus there. <laughs> yeah, I'll have a side of Soylent Green, please, and just bring me the whole body. <laughs> that cast alone is enough to make me interested, and so I'll be keeping an eye on the menu, and uh, we'll deliver more information on that as it comes in. Someone who's on a star rise at the moment is the star of Bridgerton, Reggie Jean Page, who's going to be playing The Saint in a franchise reboot for Paramount. I noticed this. This landed after the show went out last week, and I meant to say to you, we should include this. And... Uh, Interestingly enough, because he had been tipped to join the cast of Wakanda Forever and, and the good money was on, he was going to become the new Black Panther. There was also rumour that he was going to be the next Bond. There was also rumour that he was going to be the next Doctor Who, uh, et cetera, et cetera, because he's a star on the rise. And predominantly, uh, Maya the Half, she absolutely loves him and would see him in anything, uh, mainly swim <laughs> trunks, I think. Um, but clearly, if he's going down the Saint route, that's going to open up the possibility of a franchise. The Saint has never really gone away. I know most people will refer back to Val Kilmer's movie effort, which was was disappointing at best. But The Saint has been around on TV in one incarnation of another over the last 20 odd years. So The Saint's a recognisable character, but it needs to be, if it's going to the big screen, be updated in a way that that brings in new fans in the same way that, that Bond had to go through this, yeah. this uh, reassessment of what Bond's about. But I'm, I'm always interested in The Saint. I, I read The Saint's books when I was a kid. I, I vaguely remember the Roger Moore uh, show, but I, I definitely remember the Ian Ogilvy's take on The Saint. Uh, this new reboot previously had Dexter Fletcher tagged to direct and Chris Pine attached to star, but all those plans have been scrapped now and there's no announcements as to who's going to be directing this version. But I'm going to keep my eyes open and hope, hope that it can find an audience in this day and age. Also, Regé Jean Page is going to be starring in The Grey Man, Joe and Anthony Russo's film for Netflix, which has finally wrapped shooting. Now, this film is another one with a great lineup. You've got Ryan Gosling playing a former CIA agent turned assassin known as The Grey Man and Chris Evans playing against him as Lloyd Hansen, his former colleague who's trying to track him down. Anna de Armis is also in there, Billy Bob Thornton, Jessica Henwick and Michael Gandolfini. Great names rounding out the cast for what is hoped to be a potential franchise launcher adapted from the book by Mark Greedy. I'm talking of reboots. Uh, there's news that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which we've mentioned before, that a brand new movie is in the works with Colin and Casey Jost on board as writers. It doesn't seem five minutes since those heroes in a half shell last appeared. Yes, uh, we reported a few weeks ago on the animated offering from Seth Rogen that is in production. This is completely separate to that animated reboot offering, as a li and this one will be a live-action movie from Paramount. There's no word yet whether this is going to be a direct continuation of the recent live-action films, 
But with Michael Bayliss as a, as a producer on this, it does seem very likely. For for people who like mutant animals, sad news this week as <laughs> best link ever. <laughs> Clifford the Big Red Dog has been pulled from release by Paramount. It was initially set set for September the 17th release. The film now has no release date and the studio are citing fears over the Delta variant being more widespread across the states. Now, whilst we can mock and joke about, oh dear, we're not going to get to see Clifford the Big Red Dog. This is a, this could be a worrying start as other films start to trickle down. We'll report on them as it happens, but hopefully it's just a one-off and they were just more worried that it wouldn't perform well against other releases at the time. Because, let's be honest, Clifford the Red, Big, Red, Big Red Dog was never going to be a big red film. Okay, <laughs> moving on. We've mentioned before about Taika Waititi's plans to bring Flash Gordon back to life. And he, he's been talking about his animated project for a couple of years now, um, updating the character for a modern audience in animated form. However, exciting news came this week that those plans have been scrapped because it's now going to be live action. I just wanted to sing Flash R then, but I, I didn't want to embarrass myself. That's good news. Have you noticed that Taiki Watiti is everywhere these days? He's just yes. so <laughs> prolific. The Suicide Squad. He makes a little cameo in that. He is, you know, there's not many other New Zealand uh, film directors that I can name, uh, and even more so that my uh, my partner can name, but she knows who Taika Waititi is. And she even spotted him in the Suicide Squad going, oh, it's it's Taiki Waititi. That's how recognisable a name he has become. Yeah, uh, Producer John Davis has said, Taika's writing it. It was a movie that was a huge influence on him growing up. It's one of his favourite movies. He initially said to me, let's do it animated. I said, okay. Then we got into it and started developing it. He said, no, let's do it live action. I said, even better. So this is exciting. Like you say, Taika's everywhere now. He's he's huge name. His name is identifiable by the general public. And that's when a director starts to get some power to be able to do the projects that they really want to do. Once the public can recognise their name attached to something, they're in. And, you know, like you say, he, he cropped up, crops up in Suicide Squad. He's got to crop up in Free Guy in a couple of weeks. He's everywhere. I don't think he'll be happy until he's took over the whole world. <laughs> and he'll do it in a, such a charming fashion as well, with a, a great deal <laughs> of underlying humour and wackiness. Uh, back over at Netflix, and they've nabbed the rights to STX Films fast and loose which will star will smith and it's directed by david leach who gave us deadpool smith plays a man who awakens in tijuana with no memory following a string of clues to uncover who he is and how he got there he finds he's been living two lives one of them as a kingpin of crime wealth success and family and the other as a cia agent undercover with no money no home life and zero trappings of, of success but he can't remember which is the real identity and which is fake and in addition, he can't decide which one of those identities he actually wants to live as going forwards. I have this a lot, waking up on beaches not knowing who I am. <laughs> yeah, that's that's called having too much to drink. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it sounds like an interesting uh, thriller, espionage kind of film. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. You couldn't get much more high concept than that that pitch, could you really? <laughs> it's it's the aspect of not knowing which life was the real one, but also which one they actually want to stay with that I like because it gives some morality kind of exercises in there. It's quite an interesting take. Let's round off the news with two quick music themed stories. A new clip has surfaced of Jennifer Hudson as Aretha Franklin singing Respect, the title song for the biopic of the legendary singer, which opens later this month. 
The film follows Aretha's rise from a young girl singing at her father's gospel church to her prominence as the Queen of Soul. Couldn't be impressed with that one. If you've seen the clip, she is marvellous, is it? And instantly, I'm on board with this film and I can't wait for it to come out. I'm going to be... We'll be running a show and we'll be talking about it on here. And finally, Becoming Led Zeppelin is the title for a recently completed documentary by American epic filmmaker Bernard McMahon. And it marks the first time the group has participated in a documentary in almost 50 years. The only real, the, the only real time they've cooperated previously was in 1976 as The Song Remains the Same, which was mostly a concert film with small dialogue interjections. But this new documentary is going to explore the band through archive footage and restoration of old clips, as well as brand new interviews with Jimmy Page, Robert Plant and John Paul Jones, and some uncovered archive footage with the late John Bonham being inserted in there. This is going to be a must-see for any fans of the legendary group. And the release date is as yet unknown, but I'll be marking it in my calendar as soon as it's released. It's almost your stairway to heaven, that, isn't it, Andy? And on that note, that's the news. So if you enjoyed the news and you enjoyed everything we've spoken about so far and you are fast becoming a fan of the film file, well, why don't you head on over to your favourite podcast platform, see the subscribe button, hit it, then hit the like button. Because you know what? The big books are keeping Andy and I awake at night more than Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit. The only reason the big books are keeping me awake is to keep falling off my bookshelf. <laughs> so if you're a fan of the show, please hit that subscribe button and, uh, and, and hit the like because it would make us feel happy. And you want us to be happy. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by heading on over to Twitter and following us at Filmfile UK. You can head over to Instagram, Filmfile UK. Or you can get in touch with us via email by dropping us a line, podcast at filmfile.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, so as you know, and you're a follower of the show, that each week we do a deep dive into a classic movie. And we can't get much more classic than this particular film because this particular film basically launched the summer blockbuster movie changed movie making changed film history changed film marketing and is of course the 1975 american thriller directed by steven spielberg it's my favorite thriller of all time it's in my top three films of all time it is jaws is it true that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about ten feet from the beach? You're going to need a bigger boat. Yes, Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg, the film that made the beard, the man who he is today, that launched his career in a way that changed box office revenue forever. It's based on the 1974 novel by Peter Benchley. And it's the story of a man-eating great white shark that attacks beachgoers at a summer resort town, prompting police chief Martin Brody, played wonderfully by Roy Schneider, to hunt with the help of a marine biologist, played by Richard Dreyfuss, and a professional shark hunter, the late great Robert Shaw, to stop the shark's onslaught. As I said at the top end, this is, well, 
close to being my my favourite film. If I ever have to do that, you've got to pick one film, then it's always between Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and Jaws because they both mean so much to me. This film blows me away. As I said, it's not just the prototype summer blockbuster regarded as, as a watershed film that changed motion picture history. It's also one of the best thrillers you will ever see. It's Steven Spielberg at the beginning of his career proving what a great director he is because he took basically a, a pulp novel and turned it not necessarily into high art, but into the highest octane thriller that you can imagine. Why? Because he used filmmaking technique against adversity of how the film was, was coming together to produce something that is, is, a, is not only masterful, but a masterclass. In, in thriller making and directing. Andy, uh, your thoughts on when and how Jaws uh, came into your life? Uh, I was first introduced to Jaws through, I had one of those, I had an uncle who obsessed over new technology. And so he was the first person to buy a VHS player. He was the first person to get a, a large TV. He always bought new tech as soon as it came out. And so when he had his VHS player, one film that he had on VHS was Jaws. And while we were around there, and I'm a young, wee little whippersnapper, and he's showing off his VHS player with like by putting in some tapes and like showing bits of films. Then he shows Jaws, and he's basically skipping through most of the film, but just getting to all the juicy bits and showing us, like, look at this. Oh, look, he gets bit in half. Oh, look at this bit. Oh. And as a young child, I was fascinated by it. I was already fascinated with horror. I was a fan of Hammer Horror stuff. And... I was already, like, as we've explained previously, I was a fan of cinema from an early age. So I knew that I had to see this film in some way, shape or form. And so it was a few months later that I finally got to see the whole film in full and it didn't disappoint. It's just one of those films where everything that went wrong went wrong so well to make it the great film that it is. It's packed with not only, like, shock moments, you know, when it when it gets bloody, it does get quite bloody for like what is a low-rated film. It's recently been re reassessed as a 12A, but it was the equivalent of a PG, which means that, hey, your kids can watch this, no problem. And I'll be honest here, my kids have watched this from the age of five because I think that everyone should watch this at an early age because it's such a thrill ride. It's a roller coaster summer blockbuster template that has been copied and copied and copied throughout the decades, and for very good reason. Spielberg managed to deliver a film that makes such effective use of location, effects, lack of effects, cast, and camera tricks. Can I just take a moment to just say that the crash zoom camera effect is my favourite effect that can be done on film. And Spielberg uses it beautifully with the crash zoom into Roy Schneider's face as he sees something horrific happening out on the water. It's a beautifully positioned moment and it's the perfect use of it. This film is something that I go back to at least once a year. It, I have been known to watch this multiple times in a week because I love to re-explore it and re-explore it and re-explore it and I never tire of it. I, I don't blame you. I mean, as you said, this, this film was made with adversity and everyone, everyone knows the story that the mechanical shark didn't work. The insistence of shooting it on location to give it that sense of authenticity rather than uh, on, on a studio set. Uh, the film was shot up in Maine and 
the shark was designed in, if I remember correctly, in a uh, in a water tank. But when they got it out to sea, the salt in the in the sea corroded the shark, and so literally the shark would work for seconds, and and that's how much they got. So Spielberg did the smart thing. Instead of making the Godzilla as he intended to do of shark movies, he made the psycho of shark movies and and let the camera and the music, importantly, let's not forget John Williams' score, mm. because A, apart from being iconic, it does a remarkable thing. It tells you when the shark is there. It's the shark's signature tune. And that got rid of so many of the issues that they had. And also the fact that he brought in Thelma Schumacher, to edit the film, uh, who edited for Scorsese, uh, and and made this tightly crafted, and it is a beautifully crafted uh, um, uh, movie, uh, and made it work. And it was a, a, a horrific shoot, and he nearly got sacked from it, and, and, and thank goodness he didn't, because in an alternate reality, this wouldn't have been the film that it was. It is a masterful piece of filmmaking. And this was Steven Spielberg's second movie after Sugarland Express. And of course, he'd done the TV movie Duel, which is what brought him into that. So a little bit of history on the film. So Peter Benchley's book was huge. Uh, he was allowed to write the first draft. Uh, Zanuck and Brown, who were the producers on it, uh, originally wanted filmmaker John Sturgis, who'd done The Old Man and the Sea. And then they offered the job to Dick Richards, who directorial debut, the Culpepper Cattle Company, uh, had come out previously. Spielberg wanted the job. He was 26 at the time. He'd already done the one movie and he was uh, insistent. Uh, when he didn't look like he was going to get it, he was up to do a film called Lucky Lady, which I have seen. Uh, and he made the right choice by choosing Jaws because uh, Jaws made his career, literally made his career. He also decided he wanted to stick to the novel and he wanted the second half of the novel to uh, to be the shark hunt as long as he could rewrite the, the first act, uh, act one and act two. And that's where the film works, because even though you've got this and he dumped a lot of Benchley's subplots. But what works on this is the fact that he brings characterization. He makes those characters, especially Roy Schneider's character. He makes them feel real. And because we care about them then we care about what happens to them once these guys get out to sea. And that's when the film changes. There is definitely two halves for this film. And each one progresses the story on and the characterization to, to, to create one of the, some, some, not only some of the best and memorable dialogue you will find in a thriller, but also some of the most memorable action. It is an absolutely superbly created and crafted movie. The casting on this film was critical. Um, Spielberg turned down names such as Charlton Heston because he was concerned that a big name's screen presence would unbalance the film. So he went with known actors, but not huge names. Scheider, Dreyfus, Murray Hamilton and Robert Shaw, amongst others. And Scheider, in the primary role of Brody, is so well placed that it feels like the role was actually written with him in mind. He's immediately believable. And like you've said, you completely engage with them from those early scenes. His character as a family man and police chief, you really start to relate to him and you connect with him and you start to care about him. Dreyfus, when he comes in with his enthusiastic charm, uh, the role, this role in particular, had been redrafted for the actor to make the best use of Dreyfus's onset nature. And basically, Dreyfus represents Spielberg himself, the enthusiasm, the, um, the, the fascination. And 
it, it, this is something that became a theme with Spielberg. He always puts a character that relates to himself within his films. Uh, the pair yeah. balance well. And then you have the inclusion of the grizzled Robert Shaw as Quint, a character clearly inspired by Captain Ahab, who rounds out the trio perfectly. Shaw, in particular, famously improvised a lot of dialogue, including that absolutely amazing Indianapolis speech, which the, the whole storytelling and the tension of that scene is so meticulously put together. And to know that Shaw was maybe not quite, <laughs> maybe not quite with it for most of the time, but he delivered so well on set. The three of them together in that latter half of the film as they're doing the shark hunt, the different energies that they each bring make it just such compelling viewing. It does. And, you know, there were tensions between Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss, and and that plays out in the film. And uh, that antagonism that that, um, Shaw was giving Dreyfuss helps mould the relationships on film as well. you know, Robert Shaw was was a difficult man. Apparently, he had a, had a drinking habit, but he was a boy. What a great actor! And you know, you you can't think about this film because you don't just think about the, the shark. When you picture this film in your head, you picture Snyder, you picture Dreyfus. You don't picture the shark. You you think of the cast again. That's one of of, of the the strengths of it because you don't think of the monster. You think of of the of the people involved. It, it, it is just an, an absolutely superb film. I've seen it time and time again. I've shown it to film students. And yes, you can look back at the, some of the effects work. And you know what? I'm always glad that Spielberg didn't go back and CGI it and didn't yeah. go back and revisit it the way that, that Lucas would have, for instance. And I'm not to, to throw shade on, on George Lucas, but it, it stands up as a, as a film of its time. And, and it stands up as, as, as a piece of filmmaking of its time. It is absolutely uh, uh, stunning. And having grown up through, and I didn't see Jaws when it when it was released, but having grown up through that period, I remember the kids at school raving over this, going back multiple times to, to, to see Jaws. I saw it on its re-release. I don't know why. I don't know what, why I didn't get to see it. I'm disappointed that I didn't go, go then, but hey, that's history. But there was a real sense of people talking about it. Everybody spoke about Jaws, and and so much so that it produced just incredible box office. Um, yeah. It overtook The Godfather as the highest grossing film at the North American box office, and it is now to this day still considered one of the highest box office films. And as I said, it changed cinema. It gave us the summer blockbuster movie because before that, folks. They didn't do summer blockbuster movies and Jaws and then subsequently Star Wars and then Close Encounters and Superman all fed into that that way that, that cinema has changed and the marketing of film. Because up until that point, really, the, the term blockbuster was was only used for, for, for high profile films like The Godfather. I just want to jump back to your, when you spoke about the music and the excellence theme that John Williams added into there, that low bass conditioning of like, this is the shark approaching is best used when it's not actually used. You are so conditioned by the music into when you hear that, the shark's nearby that on a later point in the film, when the shark just lunges out the water, when he's feeding the chum out, it catches you off guard because you were not signaled that the shark was anywhere nearby. The silence was the perfect use of music for one moment. 
brilliant filmmaking from Spielberg. So, of course, any film that that's big, the studio want to make sequels. And they did. And, you know, with each sequel, it became highly more forgettable. I got a little bit of love for Jaws 2. I wish Spielberg had directed it. Um, Jeanette Swark, who yeah. was uh, 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 kind of a studio for hire kind of guy, came in to do it. There's a, there's a bit to like about Jaws 2. It's not the turkey that everyone regards it as. It did quite well at the box office, so much so that there was a, a, another two uh, two movies. But, of course, it doesn't hold up uh, at all to the first one. But it's not that bad. After that, it's that bad. Yeah, I've got I've got love for part two as well. I think that it carries on the story pretty pretty well but then you get to number three which became a gimmick for 3d because yeah 3d was a phase back then as well just like it was 10 years ago and the film suffers from just being about the effects and jaws was never about the effects jaws was about the family drama and the crisis it was never just about the shark and that's what they missed the point on on the third film and then you get to the fourth film and then you just ignore the fourth film. That's the best thing to do. I know that Michael Caine's in there. Don't let that make you think that it's anything good, because it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it also refeatured Lorraine Gary returning as Ellen Brody. Yeah, it, it's a dreadful film where they suddenly decided to have it being that the, the shark's got a personal vendetta. Because that's what sharks do. It's a mess of a film that was uh, reshot and re-edited and had multiple versions. Not worth checking out. Will Jaws make a comeback at some point? I've got no doubt that at some point someone will greenlight another Jaws film. Do we need it? Not particularly. We've got the first film. We will always have that first film there and it will always be a five-star film. Even new audiences, when I've shown it to my kids, they've embraced it and love it as much as I do. They can see past the ropey effects because those effects work effectively because of how well Spielberg did them. It's a perfect film from a perfect director. I totally agree. So if you've not seen Jaws, then what's wrong with you and why you're listening to this show? But if you've not seen it, it was available on Netflix. It is available on Blu-ray and it is on Apple and other streaming services to purchase. And it is an absolute classic. So that was our deep dive. We'll have another one for you next week. But Andy and I have had a chance to go to the cinema together. Not just once, but twice within last week. I know, dear listeners, you are aghast. Um, Andy and I got to see The Suicide Squad. Let's not get this confused with Suicide Squad. <laughs> as we said at the top of the programme as well, uh, we've seen Jungle Cruise. And Andy, you'll be talking about, what was it again? Shadow in the Cloud, okay. which landed on Amazon. Which I'm interested in. So, shall we kick off with Suicide Squad then? Let's start with the squad. Robert Dubois is in prison for putting Superman in the ICU. I'm not joining your suicide squad. We'll see. They say I'm not okay. Let's meet your team. <laughs> I need to feel the raindrops on my head. On my head. I'm a superhero! I do not admire. Are you in or out? Okay, so it, this is a sequel to Suicide Squad by David Ayer and uh, shares the, the same universe as it takes us back down the route set out in the previous film. Argus director Amanda Waller, played with True Grit by Viola Davis, is persisting with her Suicide Squad, which are a band of, well, basically super-powered criminals, uh, convicts, chosen to fulfil special government missions 
and if they don't succeed, they have to they do it and die trying. She assembles a new team of ragtag uh, supervillains to find an evil scientist played by Peter Capaldi, who previously you'll know as Doctor Who, and prevent the release and wait for it of a alien giant starfish that could potentially, of course it could, destroy the world. So we're already with that brief descriptor into preposterous territory. And if one thing we know about James Gunn, he does dig on preposterous. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, it's it's a silly idea taken to the extreme. It's closer to the 80s comic than David Ayer's film uh, and holds up that that concept really, really well. Uh, it's got some interesting plot twists in it. it it's pure James Gunn on, on every level. He's been allowed literally to run riot with script and directing. And it's probably his most confidently directed film, more so than um, Guardians of the Galaxy, both volumes. I enjoyed it for most of it, thinking this is going to be the saviour of the DCU. And about halfway through, not that I got bored, I was always constantly, constantly entertained. What happened was that it becomes, the, the zanniness and the wackiness and the bloodshed and the gore just becomes slightly repetitive. And you know what? It's not a million miles away from the plot of the first movie, Men on a Mission and Harley Quinn. And almost the silliness started to, to wear thin for me. But I was entertained, and I'm pretty sure that Andy and I are going to be entertained possibly by the, exactly the same things. But um, it is a lot of fun. The interplay with all the members of the team are hugely, hugely enjoyable. Uh, you know, These characters don't play well together. Uh, and that's apparent as well. But just like Guardians, he takes obscure characters and brings them together really, really well uh, and makes you engage with them. But what it lacks that Guardians had, especially the first movie in Tenfold, was pure heart. And this goes for this goes for the silliness over the heart, I think. Andy, your thoughts on it? Um, as you've said, this is James Gunn being the most James Gunn that James Gunn can actually be. Um, I commented as soon as the film finished to you that this felt like a multi-million dollar, huge budget trauma film. Yeah. From start to finish, it's got that trauma essence to it, the jokey nature, the really gory shock effects. And because it, it's James Gunn, he gets away with it. And he's having fun. You can tell he's just picked some of his favourite Z-list characters to throw into this to have fun with. Uh, the cast is phenomenal. Uh, Idris Elba as Bloodsport, John Cena as Peacemaker, Michael Rooker as Savant, Daniela Melchior as Ratcatcher, Pete Davidson, Blackguard, Nathan Fillion, Fillion as TDK, King Shark voiced by Stallone, David Mastalchian as Polka Dot Man, and much, much more. But Gunn handles them quite effectively. Admittedly, he handles some of them a bit rapidly, but once the main story gets going and the main core team are on their mission, you can see the fun that he had in crafting their journey. Elvis Bloodsport is an absolute standout. His battle for leadership of the team against John Cena's similarly ability-based peacemaker is some of the highlights. When there's a mo moment in the film when they're infiltrating a bandit camp, to rescue uh, Rick Flagg. And it's watching them working through the camp and trying to outdo each other with how they can kill people. And it's that little 
you know, under the surface bickering that's going on, even when they're not verbally bickering, you can tell that there's animosity going on between them all. They don't get on, like you said. And even though Bloodsport, played by Elba, is scowling a lot through this, it's clear that Elba was having so much fun being in such a role. He is chewing up the scenery where he can and having a riot doing it. Uh, John Cena was an amazing standout in this because he's not really impressed me in films up until this point. Oh, not at all. He's been in some light-hearted comedies where he's just, well, kind of been in a light-hearted comedy. But in this, he's, I'm sold on the idea of having a whole series of Peacemaker, which was announced last year that he was going to get his own spin-off TV series. And I'm now on board for that because I enjoyed following his character in this. But for me, the standout stars in this are Mastalchian as Polka Dot Man, who is the absolute heart of the film, and Melchior as Ratcatcher 2, who again has so much backstory and heart, even though she's a kind of secondary character. If anything, the one character that kind of let it all down, sadly, is Harley. Oh, really? Because I was going to say, if you've got to do, you've got to put the time in uh, as, as an actor to to be up there against um, uh, Margot Robbie as as, uh, as Harley Quinn, because she's such a scene-stealing character. And the others have done really well to stand out. I'm not saying she's bad. She's as great as Margot Robbie is. She's got so comfortable with this character now that you don't know where the actress ends and the character begins. She is Harley Quinn. But having her in this film kind of detracts from all the other characters and there's an unnecessary subplot involving her, which gives a chance to showcase her Harley kind of nature again. But it's nothing that we couldn't have seen in Birds of Prey 2 or another Harley Quinn film. It didn't need to take away from the rest of the, the Suicide Squad. That's my only problem with it. It's not that she's a bad character. It's that right. she kind of steals screen time away from the main story. I, I mean, as, as the main story goes, it's fun. The ending did remind me of Ghostbusters for some weird reason, which I don't know if, don't think that was just me. Uh, my partner enjoyed it. I was so surprised. Uh, um, superhero movies aren't her bag. Uh, and she came away absolutely loving it. I think she actually probably loved it more than me. I think she put it down to two things, though. One, there were some men in very tight underwear, which uh, helps. Uh, 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 definitely <laughs> helped. And uh, But she thought the downside is that, that birds had a had a particular met some nasty ends in it. I mean, the flying kinds of birds. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I enjoyed it. I, at one point I was loving it. And then somebody turned the boil down and I didn't know. Enduring it's the wrong word. I had fun with it. There wasn't a point when I didn't have fun. Yeah. But I think for a lot of it, the calamity and the nonsense were just ongoing and I wanted them to lighten up a little bit. And I think it was overlong. I, I, and I feel it's that, that good a case of the let's get James Gunn in. He can do for the for the DCU what he did for Marvel. Take these these Z rate characters and make them into something. Yes, mission achieved. But we'll give him everything that he wants. And it was a case of everything was in there. The kitchen sink, the the whole the whole kitchen was in at one point. <laughs> and there were some great great gags and and some nice light touches. And there was even some some nice little political jabs in it towards the, the end of the movie. It, it, it was just, I was brain fried afterwards. Um, not to say that I didn't have a good time. This would rank highly in my modern DCU movies, being up there with, with what some of the most imaginative. And it just proves that DCU don't have that winning formula. What they do is produce very good or sometimes excellent individual films. The less connected they are to the rest of the DCU, 
the more enjoyable they are for me. A quick mention of one of the nicest touches that this film had was the chapter headings. Just like a comic book, as though you were opening up the next issue and you have the one or two page individual picture and the title is made out of scenery or sand across the beach or blood splatters or smoke. And James Gunn nailed that perfectly, that each section of the film had a chapter heading done in such a way. It made it not a comic book movie, but a movie of a comic book, which sounds about the same, but it's a completely different approach. He was just basically filming a comic book. Yeah, and he's not embarrassed, is he, why things like like costumes, ridiculous costume designs, um, and and plays into them. Uh, And, you know... There's a there's always a good reason <laughs> that the costume designers take their inspiration from uh, from comics and do something differently with them because uh, as there is a a running gag about uh, peacemakers costume for instance that appears more <laughs> than once there yeah as I said uh, don't get me wrong I did I, I had a great time with it thoroughly enjoyed it did I love it no there there were things that there are elements to it that held me back from loving it but I did have Two and a half hours, nearly, of, of, of absolute fun. Good bloody fun at that. Uh, do you want to start a jungle cruise, Andy? What's out there in the jungle? It's not a fun vacation. Well, I'm not here for a vacation. Oh, God, sorry, Frank. Sorry, strong form. <laughs> here we go. Oh. I got you. Frank, I got it. I don't got it. Jungle Cruise Cruise was our next film that we saw together. Now, in the early 20th century, Dr. Lily Horton, played by Emily Blunt, and her brother McGregor, played by Jack Whitehall, set off to prove the existence of the Tears of the Moon, a mythical tree that legend tells of a 16th century conquistador who sought its bloom as a cure to all maladies, only to be cursed by villagers to never leave sight of the river. They head to South America, where they end up hiring Frank Wolf, played by Rock the Dwayne Johnson, who takes sightseers on Jungle River cruises stacked with fake thrills and bad jokes. However, it appears he knows something of the legend, and he insists he's the only person who can take the pair to their treasure. Adventure, myth, magic, curses. This is Pirates of the Caribbean territory once more. Uh, yeah, and it's based on, just like Pirates of the Caribbean, it's based on a Disney ride, which should have you initially being sceptical. Now, this is a film for me that, again, feels like we're back in familiar territory. In fact, so much familiar territory that you could name uh, all the films that it feels very, very familiar by. I think we mentioned Romancing the Stone, uh, African Queen, and heavily for me, not so much uh, A Rage of the Lost Ark, but The Mummy, you know, the Stephen Summers Mummy. It it, it gave me a great sense of that. This, This would feel very in place as a rainy Sunday afternoon film because everything about it is there's nothing unpleasant about this film even some of the death scenes which are are done humorously believe it or not and when you see the film you'll understand this is a an absolute ride of a film it engages without ever giving you anything to think about uh, it's instantly forgettable in fact uh, my son's seen it and I said what's your favorite bit and he went mm, I can't really remember <laughs> and it is that uh, the only thing that really really stands out for it uh are the performances and particularly emily blunt because every time she was on screen the camera loves her uh, and the film yeah. comes alive she is and i'm going to use a pun here she's the rock to this particular film um rock the dwayne johnson 
you know, he, he's, he's got charisma in charms. I thought their relationship was more of a brother-sister relationship because of the age difference. Clearly, The Rock's a lot older than Emily Blunt, or he appears to be a lot older. But it was it's nothing's done badly in this film. Uh, nothing's out of place. It's just very, very deeply derivative of so much other things yeah. that you've seen before. But if you want to waste time and have something that will that will flow over you, is colourful, is bright, has moments of excitement, a couple of good plot twists, then then this film will absolutely play out perfectly. For me, I struggled in the first half hour of this film. I was failing to connect with it. The very presence of Jack Whitehall in it dragged the film down at the start. He plays that oh-so-stereotypical rich Englishman who's clumsy and aloof that we've seen dragged to death constantly in similar ventures. Including The Mummy. Yeah, it wasn't fun when John Hanna did it in The Mummy. And it certainly isn't fun when the made-for-TV Whitehall does it either. Even in the scenes which were set up The Rock's character, they were dragged down unfortunately, by Paul Giamatti, of all, uh, all people, who just seems to be pantomime villain-esking for no particular reason. And then some of the CGI came across as very much, ooh, this was made for 3D. Look, here's a branch jutting out the centre of the screen and lingering there, because if you're watching this in 3D, you would go, wow. And when you're watching it in 2D, it was very blatantly a break away from the film moment, failing me to engage. But then... The Rock and Emily Blunt ended up on screen together. And from that point onwards, things started to pick up. Like you've already mentioned, those two together seem to play really well. Blunt is on magnificent form. And yes, the repeating character tropes that we've seen before. But when the star power is this good, it's just so much fun. So much fun that I could ignore Jack Whitehall by that point. And let's not forget great Jesse Plemons, who, yes. uh, who just who could overact, being given the opportunity <laughs> to overact so much that he was... He was over the mountain and then back again, uh, but clearly was having fun playing that kind of a character. He's played villains before, oh, yeah. uh, but, he, but he's never chewed the scenery as a German prince um, who's seeking this treasure. And he proper, not only chews the scenery, he spits it all out and then picks up the vomit afterwards and <laughs> eats that again. He really gets into it and it's a joy to behold seeing him having so much fun in it. Jamie Collette Sarah in the director's chair didn't seem to be a comfortable fit with so much effects work. That He's come up from House of Wax, Orphan and the Shallows, low-budget horror fair, and also Liam Neeson action thrillers, unknown, non-stop, commuter. Maybe this is why the action feels choppy and messy and the CGI kind of blurs into the action. He just doesn't seem comfortable with it. And it's kind of made me a bit worried for the Black Adam film because he sat in the director's chair for that. I'll, I'll totally agree. I thought the action sequences had that that tendency to be I, I not been able to focus as to what was going on in them which is sometimes a, a major problem in in 3d but in this uh, everything felt far too close as though it was made for tv in, in places yes and there was even though the film had clearly established a sense of scale i thought the action sequences let that down they felt they felt quite claustrophobic um overall it's it's an enjoyable film there's nothing not to enjoy of this You'll just walk out and you'll go, yeah, that was that was okay. Um, and, yeah. and, and it is. It's okay. As I said, deeply derivative of everything else. But good Saturday morning, Sunday afternoon kind of fare that after you've seen it, you'll have no interest in wanting to see it ever again. Interesting uh, score behind the film as well by James Newton Howard, which also includes an interpretation of Metallica's Nothing Else Matters 
which was quite a quite a shock to the system to have a film starting off with a Metallica in a Disney film. But apparently that's because uh, Disney president Sean Bailey has always wanted to try to find a film to fit Metallica into because he's a huge fan. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love the fact that you managed to slot it in so perfectly. It's enjoyable, albeit overblown, family adventure film, which is instantly forgettable. So that's Jungle Cruise. And now on to the one that I've not seen, Shadow on the Clouds. Now, I've seen Shadow in the Clouds twice now. I saw it last year. And I've watched it only last week when it finally landed in the UK on Amazon. Gremlins are all in your head. It's not critters who cause accidents. It's careless airmen. The hell are you doing here? What's your name, honey? Flight Officer Garrett. I'm a flight mechanic and a pilot. Ain't no women in the air corps. My mission is classified. That's all you need to know. Who the hell are you, Miss Garrett? There's something on top of the plane. Beyond danger. Gremlins are all in your head. We owe it to our boys to stay focused. Let's keep our skies safe. Welcome back to the party, baby. When I first watched it last year, I was quite underwhelmed by it because there's a point in the film where it goes from feeling quite tense and claustrophobic to suddenly becoming utterly preposterous. But as I've said before, sometimes it's worth going back and revisiting something and giving it fresh eyes. And so it was a chance to do that. Unlike, say, Army of the Dead. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) You're going to mention that every time, (laughs) aren't you? (laughs) So I gave this a chance again, knowing how silly it can get. And I had a lot more fun as a result. Uh, the film sees Chloe Grace Moretz playing uh, flying officer Maud Garrett, tasked with delivering a top secret package from New Zealand to Samoa. She finds herself on the fool's errand bomber. The crew are mostly derisive towards her, and she's told that she has to sit in the takeoff through in the Sperry Ball toilet, toilet under the plane. After the plane's took off, she finds that she's trapped in there, and it appears that the bomber has various other technical issues which appear to be caused by the presence of a gremlin-like creature crawling around the plane. Yes, this is a repackaged Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, the Twilight Zone classic, a legendary TV episode with Will Shatner, but also was one of the memorable moments from the Twilight Zone movie. It's expanded out and given a new approach, with some social commentary about equality thrown in for good measure. And at the start, it's easy to be drawn in. Moretz, who were focused on for most of the film, holds it together and delivers a fiery performance. The tension builds as she finds herself trapped in the turret, which begins to see damage, and it plays well. And then it gets silly. And this is the point that you need to be ready for. At one point in the film, you see Moretz having to climb out of the turret underneath the plane and crawl along the underside of the plane to the wing to get the package that the gremlin has taken. And the the camera does some interesting trickery work where it flips the whole scene upside down. So she's crawling under the plane, but it looks like she's the right way up. And it it just comes across as absolutely nonsensical. Unless she was Spider-Man, that is not going to happen. And that was the point which I switched off the me brain the first time around. But this time around, I went with it and it's fun. And as long as you're willing to accept how ridiculous this film can be, it's just a joy to sit and watch. Great performance from Moretz, who I have commented before on this show. I've not seen anything from her that has really stood out since Kick-Ass. 
here she has a chance to really get her teeth into a role and be the centre of attention and delivers it quite well. It's well worth checking out. That's on Amazon Prime at this point in time. Shadow in the Cloud. Interestingly enough, when you're talking about derivative of uh, The Twilight Zone, what it reminded me of is the great unmade uh, Dan O'Bannon script, which I think was called Gremlins, which was about a gremlin or gremlins on a World War II bomber, which got adapted into a short in the heavy metal movie. And I know this is uh, written or partially written by Max Landis. So the fact that it is probably derivative of something else it <laughs> kind of falls into that Max Landis patch. Yeah. I, I saw the trailer for this and, and was intrigued. And um, whether I'm as intrigued now you've reviewed it, I'm not so sure. But it could be a, it could be a rainy evening, uh, COVID lockdown kind of movie. Is that a thing now, isn't it? Is it still a thing? I don't know. It's supposed to not be a thing, but let's be honest, we're going to have a Delta lockdown soon at this rate. So that's it for our reviews. Anything to watch out for over the next week, Andy? What's landing? So cinemas this week sees Stillwater, which sees Matt Damon play an American oil rig roughneck who travels to France to see his imprisoned daughter who's been accused of murder that she didn't commit. There's a German animation called Moonbound about two children who embark on a lunar adventure to help an elderly June bug. There's a thriller called Profile, which sees an undercover British journalist risking her life infiltrating extremist groups online. And there's Last Letter from Your Lover, a journalist following a trail of love letters from the 60s to uncover a secret affair. Then on streaming services, Now TV and Sky give us, once again, Paddington. Come on, I know it's years old, but it's well worth exploring Paddington again, isn't it? Always. And there's The Dry, which sees Eric Barner playing Aaron Falk, a federal agent who goes back home to his drought-stricken town to attend a tragic funeral. However, his return opens doors to an unsolved death of a teenage girl. Over on Netflix, there's Vivo, an animated family musical from Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, which sees a kind bird named Vivo tracking from Havana to Miami to deliver a song on behalf of its owner. Hit and Run, which sees a man seeking the truth behind his wife's death and gets caught up in a web of danger and intrigue. The Swarm, which sees a single mother breeding locusts as a high-protein food, but they develop a taste for human blood in a French horror film. I'm in. I'm in on that one. Netflix also have Paddington. Yep, it appears Paddington Week is on the streaming services this week, as both Netflix and Sky are both showing it. So why not watch it twice? It's the best film ever made, let's be honest. <laughs> Almost as good as Citizen <laughs> Kane, apparently. Oh, that's Paddington 2, isn't it? That's Paddington 2. That beats Citizen Kane. <laughs> so it's quite a packed week for new releases and also some old greats that you can dip into. And that's kind of it for this week. Uh, before we go, and we do this every week, as you know, if you're a, a regular listener, we do our neat thing, which is to say something that either Andy and I have thoroughly enjoyed over the last week, whether it's something that we've watched, read, listened to, ate, you name it, as long as it's neat, that's our neat thing. And traditionally, I've never been a one to break with tradition, Andy goes first. What's your neat thing this week, Andy? So my neat thing this week is Chip Zdarsky's Spider's Shadow, the Marvel comic book. Now, Zdarsky is one of my favourite writers for Marvel of recent history. From his run on Howard the Duck, which I absolutely adored, to his work on Spectacular Spider-Man, I've dipped into his Daredevil run and I really need to catch up with that. Uh, but he always brings something sharp and unique to the titles that he works on. But then you have his alternate titles. Spider-Man Life Story, which was a six-part retelling of the key moments in Spidey's life, but in a real-life setting where the hero is aged, was an absolutely fabulous miniseries. And now he's running another limited Spidey series, which asks, what if Spidey chose to keep the symbiote? 
And so we're thrown back to that defining moment post-Secret Wars when Reed examined the costume, reveals it as a symbiotic life, and in the core universe, helped remove it from Parker, which led to Venom being created. This time, however, when Reed is about to remove it, Spidey stops him, steps back and going, saying, well, this makes me better. This makes me a better hero. I want to keep it and flees. I've read the first issue and I'm well and truly engrossed in it. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out. It, it's something about his style. You can tell that Zdarsky has a handle on the characters that he plays with, but he knows how to change their history while still making it feel like it's keeping in perfect character for that character. I am a big fan of this. If you've got Marvel Unlimited subscription, it's just started on there. If not, it's currently running his Spider Shadow. Once it's finished, there will be the collected works, but I thoroughly urge people to go and check it out. I'm a big fan of his as well. His current run on Daredevil which I'm not up to date with, has been absolutely fantastic. Taking it back to the almost honouring what, what Frank Miller did and uh, Brian Michael Bendis did, but but it, finding his own voice in it. And, and Daredevil's a character that I'll always go back to, but uh, in, in this particular case, it's been a, a superb run. My neat thing for this week is also a, a comic book title. Mine is, and I may have mentioned this on, on, on a previous neat thing, but I've just now into the third book. Uh, and that's uh, a series called Southern Bastards, written by uh, Jason Aaron. Now, Jason Aaron, uh, as you know, works within Marvel a lot of the time and has redefined Thor. He came up with the the Lady Thor idea, uh, which is the, the premise for the next film, which was a fantastic read. Did some great work on the Avengers. But this is his own ongoing series, which he created and is published by Image Comics. It's himself and an artist called Joseph Latoire. And it's a series that revolves around the culture in a small town in the American Deep South where football is everything and people try to get away with crime. If this had been a movie, and definitely in the first book, it felt like a movie that would have starred Lee Marvin. It's gritty. Uh, it has that sort of 1970s uh, Deep South movie, there was a whole ton of them that sort of came out, uh, movies like White Lightning with, with Burt Reynolds. Uh, it reminds me of so many of those sort of sweaty noir type movies um, that I was in with book one. I'm now on to book three. There's a dramatic change at the end of book one where you think you know where it's going uh, and, and takes you in, a, in a, another direction. No superheroes in sight. The only thing that flies is, is, uh, is fried chicken. This is a, a dark noir that if you like it, if you like your crime stories, gritty and realistic, filled with interesting and broken characters in a very sort of traditional 70s movie setting, then this is the book for you. I'm into book three. Um, can't see me putting them down. I want to get through everything. A fantastic read. Fantastic. And I guess that's it. Uh, we'll be back next week with another show. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, Andy, any plans for the week other than work? Probably going to try and finish my Wes Anderson rewatches. I've still got three more films left to revisit. I, I'll probably slam them all in one day like I did the other day with um, the first lot. Uh, I've got a gig again on Saturday, my second of the year. So if you're in uh, the Birmingham area in Billersley at the Rock Club there, pop along. Uh, and if you listen to the show and you've come along, come along and say hello after. It'd be great to meet you. And we'll see you again next week for another film file. But in the meantime, here's to swimming with bow-legged women. Bow-legged women.